Hello, I'm Mark, and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast, where we look at how researchers can become more productive and use their work to achieve real-world impacts. In today's podcast, I'm going to look at what motivates us to generate impact from our research and how we can become significantly more motivated as researchers. Uh, I'm going to do this by giving you an insight into uh, a part of one of the chapters of uh, the book that I'm writing at the moment, titled The Productive Researcher. Uh, And this is uh, because, for me, productivity is massively influenced by our motivated. If we're motivated, we're productive. So it's really well worth understanding. And I would suggest it's worth understanding whether you want to actually produce more or you just want to be more efficient with your time so you can get more time off, more work-life balance. So motivation is the topic today. Before we get into that, I'd like to give you my research impact tip of the week. And this tip comes from uh, the forthcoming public public engagement evaluation toolkit that I helped to write with the National Coordinating Centre for Public Engagement for Queen Mary University London. Uh, There's a bunch of these... uh, tools that we're going to be publishing. Uh, For for me, one of my favourites is a postcard to your future self. Uh, Now, along with a lot of the tools in this toolkit, the great thing about this is that this is something that can actually enhance your event or your activity. So you're doing something more interesting, more cool, that engages people uh, more effectively than you would otherwise do. And at the same time, it enables you to evaluate uh, how they're uh, engaging with your work, what it's meaning to them, and, and what kind of impact it's having on them over the long term. Uh, For uh, a lot of public engagement uh, events, uh, what you typically do is you just measure what people think on the day, you collect comments, uh, you maybe do a survey uh, on the day. But what you really don't understand is whether anyone remembers anything uh, a few weeks or months uh, afterwards, uh, and in particular, whether there was any longer-term change, perhaps in people's understanding, awareness, attitudes, uh, or even perhaps behaviours. And so what we need are techniques that can enable us to evaluate uh, longitudinally how people uh, actually react to these things and what they do after the event. So postcard to your future self uh, is a technique where you print uh, a bunch of postcards uh, with lots of nice pictures uh, based on your event, uh, perhaps with a bit of a message on the back that describes what the picture is about and has a message based uh, on your research. Uh, And you have a, a, a little stall and invite people to take postcards. Uh, But in particular, you're inviting them to then post them uh, to themselves. You've got a little uh, post box uh, on the stall, uh, and you ask them to write something on the back that uh, they would like to remember uh, about the event. Uh, Or ideally, uh, uh, you ask them uh, to write something that they will do differently uh, as a result, or something that they want to remind themselves that they decided they would do differently as a result of uh, engaging with this uh, event. Uh, whether that's just, um, I'm going to uh, indulge this interest further, I'm going to go to something else uh, that is about this, I'm going to uh, read a book, I'm going to learn more, or actually, I'm going to do something different, I'm going to change the way I behave. Whatever it is, you get them to write that onto the postcard, uh, and uh, they write their address and post it. 
Uh, the clever bit now is that you have a, a wee little tick box on this and you invite people to uh, tick the box to say that they would be happy for you to follow them up later. Not, not everyone's going to do this, but for those who do, then you have uh, the permission then to uh, send them additional information so that uh, they can then re-engage with you and deepen their interest and you can then deepen that engagement with them. Uh, and down the line, if you want, you can send them a survey or you can uh, invite them to uh, an interview uh, and to really understand then what is it that has changed us as a result. So this is a technique that uh, adds value to your event itself. So you've got a, a new activity, something that, that is tangible that people will be able to take away with them. Uh, this is uh, also enabling you to deepen your engagement with these people over the longer term. And thirdly, this is a technique that enables you longitudinally uh, to track uh, and evaluate the impact that your event has had on people over the long term. Great technique. Uh, it will be uh, published very shortly in the Public Evaluation Toolkit um, and uh, works. It works. Try it out. So today, as I said earlier, what I want to really focus on is our motivation. Uh, as researchers, what is it that motivates us and how can we increase our motivation so we can become more productive um, and as a result, we can become more uh, efficient. Uh, this is uh, based uh, on questions that I've asked uh, now hundreds of researchers uh, every time I do a training. Uh, I ask researchers uh, a couple of very simple questions. And one of those questions is, why do you do what you do? Uh, and I'm going to be asking you that question uh, as part of this podcast. Uh, and I think the answers that people give uh, are uh, genuinely insightful. Um, uh, and it's really well worth interrogating yourself. And the people who uh, then discuss this with me typically say that as a result of really interrogating their motives, that they feel empowered and that uh, they go into their week, their month, uh, back to their research project with renewed vigour, with renewed motivation. But it's about understanding what ultimately is the source of your motivation. Motivation, I believe, generates productivity for three reasons. It gives you drive, focus, and staying power. If you want to be more productive, you're going to have to find ways to fuel your sense of drive. What do I mean by drive? It's what you need to start your Monday morning with enthusiasm and anticipation for the week ahead. Part of you may want to continue reading the news, browsing social media for a bit longer, uh, but that sense of excitement and purpose makes it easy to turn on your computer and actually just start your day and get stuff done. You need drive to make the conscious decision to continue writing when everyone else on your flight or train seems to have fallen asleep. You need drive to dream big, believe you can achieve your dreams and say yes when an opportunity arises to fulfil your dream before you feel quite ready. Uh, having powerful motives fuels your drive. Second of these reasons then is focus. If you want to be more productive, you need to find ways to sharpen your focus. You need focus to put everything else aside and start working on your most important tasks. Emails will be coming in, asking you for urgent information, reminding you that you promised to do this by today or tomorrow. But you put it on your to-do list and you steadfastly stick to your most important task until it's complete. 
you need focus to concentrate hard enough and long enough on your research findings to extract insights that are actually new and useful. You need focus to be clear enough about your priorities so that you can say no to invitations that might, frankly, boost your ego, but actually distract you from your central purpose. Giving, uh, having clear purpose gives you uh, clear focus. Uh, and the third reason, uh, if you want to be more productive, you need to become doggedly persistent in the pursuit of your goals. You need staying power if you want to keep working to meet that crazy deadline against all the odds. Uh, all the odds. You might be dead tired, but you keep going because of that fire in your belly that somehow gives you the energy you need to finish the job. You, you need staying power to pick yourself up uh, when your paper or your grant is rejected and to make it better and try again. You need staying power uh, to keep chasing your dreams when everyone around you tells you, you know what, that's impossible. You'll never do that. Understanding your motives enables you to understand why you have to stay the course. I believe that if you want to supercharge your motivation, you need a deeper understanding of your motives. And uh, in this podcast, I want to tell you how I have personally uh, overcome a number of challenges and assumptions that uh, I was finding chronically disempowering to find motives that have given me drive, focus uh, and staying power. Uh, and I think I'll start uh, with, with a metaphor, if I can. Um, this is the, the metaphor or the concept of, of a smart grid, uh, and this comes from energy research. Uh, and I think that it's a useful metaphor to explain how you can take a more purposeful and intelligent approach to creating and maintaining motivation in a way that flexes to the ups and downs of your life. There are two parts to a smart grid energy system. First of all, you've got a, a grid that, that integrates lots of different sources of local energy, uh, usually including renewable energy like wind and solar. Uh, and then you've got the smart bit. Uh, and there are three things that are smart about a smart grid. First, the smart grid flexes to the different sources of energy that are available to it. Storing energy when it's plentiful, for example, on a windy day, and switching to a different source when one stops producing energy, for example, because there's no wind. Making the supply of energy more stable and reliable. Second, a smart grid leaks significantly less energy than traditional systems that rely on transmitting the energy along long wires from distant power stations. Uh, and third, these systems mainly use existing energy transmission and distribution systems. You don't have to build a whole new energy infrastructure, you just have to think differently about what you already have. So that's the metaphor. Let me try and explain what I mean by that in terms of uh, uh, your motivation. Uh, if your motivation is what powers you, then my question is, how can you supercharge and maintain that motivation? Uh, and I think that this, uh, this, this metaphor gives us three really powerful insights. Uh, the first is that we each, I believe, need to explore our motives. 
Uh, and that can sometimes be exciting uh, and, and inspirational. Sometimes it can be challenging because you may actually discover hidden motives that you weren't consciously aware of when you really interrogate yourself. Some are empowering. Some may be actively demotivating you. Be aware of the things that empower and disempower you, uh, that they change over time. And so rather than trying to find a single source of motivation that you can always rely on, try and become more aware of all the different sources of motivation that you're connected to at any given time. And monitor how each given situation, relationship, goal or task makes you feel so you can flex between different sources of motivation as some of these sources lose their power to motivate you and become, uh, or, or become disempowering or demotivational. This requires, for me, a level of emotional awareness, emotional intelligence, or, or mindfulness. Um, uh, and for some of us, that, that takes practice. Um, uh, what I think we need to do is to, to try and practice becoming aware of what is motivating us, what is, mo what is demotivating us, so that we can start switching between these different sources of energy or motivation uh, more intelligently, so that we can achieve stable, high levels of motivation every day. The second of the lessons I think that this, this metaphor can teach us is that we need to recharge our motivation regularly. Every now and then something will happen um, that really inspires you in your work and helps you to reconnect with the reasons why you became a researcher in the first place. The problem is that these experiences, at least in my experience, are sadly few and far between. Um, and the further you try and stretch that inspiration out over time, the more power it loses until you find yourself running on empty most of the time. Uh, I think there are a number of things that you can do on purpose to try and reconnect yourself with your most important motives so that you can stay connected through small actions that you can take on a regular basis. Uh, and uh, in future podcasts, I'll come back to some of these kind of practical actions that, that you can take. Like the smart grid energy system, you don't have to live next to a power station all the time. You just need to find lots of smaller power sources closer to home that you can connect with on a daily basis. The third and final thing that I think um, I, I want to try and unpack from this metaphor is that uh, we need to just start thinking differently. Look at your situation differently rather than waiting for your situation to change. Look for new ways of finding joy in old tasks and relationships. And if you can't drop a particular role or task that you no longer want that's now disempowering you or demotivating you, then instead look for new reasons that will motivate you to do the things that you've got to do. Uh, for me, this is about changing the way you think about your work. You don't have to find a new job if you can discover a new joy in your old job. So <clears throat> why are you <clears throat> a researcher? This is not a rhetorical question, I'm asking you now. Why actually are you uh, a researcher? Stop for a moment and interrogate yourself. And there's a bunch of ways that you can do this. Um, uh, first question that I might ask you is, well, why did you decide to do a PhD? Um, think back to 
your first job as a researcher? What made you apply for that? Uh, or what did you say interview when they ask you, why did you want that job? Um, the, the honest part of that answer. Um, why do you pursue certain collaborations um, and not others? Do you like working with certain types of people and avoid working with other types of people? Um, what is it that gets you up on a Monday morning feeling excited about the week ahead? Uh, and for me, I think probably the most powerful question is, what is it that is most likely to give you a real sense of satisfaction and inspiration at the end of a day, uh, as you reflect on your day, you're walking back to your car, back to the underground, back to the train, whatever it is, and you're thinking to yourself, wow, that was an amazing day. I love my job and I feel totally inspired. What is it that is most likely to create that, that feeling, that sense? People's answers, I think, often reveal more about them than they realise. Uh, it's a simple question, but I think that the, the answers can reveal some quite profound stuff for us. Some of us are simply curious. Um, some of us want to achieve social standing or want our work to leave a legacy. And some of us want to make the world a better place. But when we really interrogate our motives, what lies beneath these claims? These three things are the three most common things that I hear from researchers when I do trainings uh, and when I talk to them. Uh, and I've put them in rank order. Um, and that curiosity uh, is, is actually the, by far and away the, the number one thing that people tell me uh, is what motivates them as a researcher, what, the reason why they became uh, a researcher. But uh, I think when you really start to ask, really, and why, uh, and go deeper, then, then you get more insights. So let's have a think about this. Do you, <coughs> do you depend on the way that success in your research makes you feel about yourself? Do paper and grant rejections make you doubt yourself, not only as a researcher, but as a person? I I've certainly been there. Does some inner voice tell you that you're a fake, that you don't deserve the status of expert? Uh, your latest rejection is the evidence. It's surely uh, just a matter of time before everyone else realises that you aren't actually that good, uh, the whole imposter syndrome thing. Do you need recognition for your research to externally validate yourself and make you feel that you are somebody worthy of respect? Uh, I think most of us instantly would say, of course not, I, I, I like myself, I, I respect myself. Uh, but, but really, do you, do you uh, seek respect from your, from your peers um, uh, and then use their accolades to convince yourself that you can and should respect yourself? Uh, do you want to make the world a better place so that the world can see how clever and amazing you are? Uh, is your curiosity a way of hiding away? in some enthralling world that shuts out the mundane cruelty of everyday life. What I'm trying to get at here is that I think we need to know why, really, why each of us uh, are researchers. Uh, and I think that as we each become increasingly aware of the motives that lie behind our motives, uh, then we can become empowered um, and we can start to now consciously uh, tap into motives that can really power us forward uh, in a way that is linked to our values and, and what we really fundamentally want to achieve from our careers. Uh, and I think that 
from a place of increasing self-acceptance and self-respect, it becomes possible to, to see the everyday rejections uh, and failures of academic life as things happening around you rather than things happening inside you. And from this perspective, then you've got a choice to engage with those things deeply or to let them go. Sometimes we mess up and we need to interrogate ourselves to work out what, what went wrong so that we can do better next time. Sometimes things are outside our control and we just need to let them pass us by. For me, it's like seeing my life as, as a city full of bustling streets. I, I used to walk around those streets blindly with my eyes on the ground in front of me until I would suddenly be hit by a lorry out of nowhere, so my latest grant rejection or some kind of mistake that I've made in, in my work. Uh, and, and for me, life was unpredictable, it was stressful, it was impossible to escape from the background stress of life lived at street level, no matter how hard I tried to ignore the hooting horns, the screaming kids, all that kind of stuff. The difference is that what I'm trying to do now is to live life above the city. I can see everyone else rushing around the streets, crossing roads between cars and lorries, sometimes getting knocked over. Um, and every now and then, a lorry comes into the city for me, loading, loaded with my latest grant reduction. I had one last week, in fact, uh, or error of judgment. Uh, but now, rather than being knocked flat by it, I've got a choice. From this height, they look more like toy cars and lorries. And if I can, uh, if I want to, I can pick that lorry up in my hand and look at it. And I'm now looking at it with a sense of curiosity, wanting to understand what I need to do better next time. And with a sense of calm, I then place it back on the road and let it drive on. Sometimes I really need to examine what went wrong. And from this perspective, it's a lot easier to look objectively at the situation and to learn useful lessons without being blinded to what actually happened uh, by emotional reactivity. Often it's just a reviewer with a chip on their shoulder or something that's completely outside my control. I can just put it right back on the road and let it drive off. Uh, or I can decide not to even bother picking it up in the first place. It just drives on past, packed full of all its rejection and failure and criticism. And I'm just watching with no more than a passing curiosity. The reality, I think, is that reviewers and other colleagues we work with who give us such scathing feedback rarely intend to create emotional damage. Uh, I'm a handling editor um, and uh, I'm an editorial board member for a couple of high-ranking journals. Uh, I've served on lots of different funding panels and I can tell you from experience that the reviewers are not trying to get at you. Uh, no one on that fund funding panel is mocking you. But every now and then you do get reviews that are seemingly spiteful and certainly uh, unfair. But in my experience, editors and panel members usually spot these a mile off and interpret their re review accordingly. Um, uh, far more frequent than the needlessly cruel review, uh, I would say, is in fact the needlessly defensive response. Uh, and that very rarely does you favours with journal editors or panel members. Uh, the time and more importantly, the emotional energy that has clearly been poured into that response uh, makes me feel deeply for the researcher every time, and it isn't necessary and it doesn't help. What I've been talking to you about here is uh, something based on um, relational frame theory. This was developed uh, by Stephen C. Hayes, who's a professor of psychology at the University of Nevada. 
Uh, this theory suggests that we often take experiences out of context, such as the grant rejection, and give them meaning as part of a negative story uh, about ourselves, uh, for example, that we're not good enough, and then uh, avoid thinking about these negative experiences. So it's this emotional avoidance, the, the, the trying to avoid thinking about things that make us feel bad, uh, that means that we are then unable to learn effectively from our negative experiences. And we may even find ourselves procrastinating to avoid doing things that might elicit that same negative experience again. For example, I'm now dragging my feet to submit that next grant proposal or to resubmit that paper to another journal because uh, on a subconscious level, I'm trying to avoid that negative, uh, that negative experience happening again. The trick, argues Hayes, is to take the bird's eye view of the negative experience in the wider context of your professional life. Recognising uh, and letting go of the emotions associated with your latest rejection, uh, and then refocusing on, the, on your core goals and values so that you can move on with clear focus, direction and motivation. So rather than continuing to focus on those negative words of the reviewers or, or trying to stop feeling in a particular way, you now look at how those words make you feel, accept those emotions as genuine and understandable. Yeah, it's, it's hard. And you move on, focusing instead on those core goals and values and what comes next, not what was in the past. Just because you fail sometimes doesn't mean that you are a failure. Just because you make mistakes doesn't mean you are a mistake. These statements uh, are, are, I think, extreme, but they're obvious. And when we examine that niggle of self-doubt, that sigh as we get back to work after a break, we may find that at some level, we actually do believe those statements in our subconscious mind, despite the fact that they are so obviously incorrect. I think that if we can just become that bit more emotionally aware and mindful, then we might be able to pick up on that niggle or, or sigh on an emotional level, turn it over in our minds and examine it more closely. And as we become more aware of our feelings, we can begin to recognise them in our conscious minds and start to separate how we feel from the experiences that life throws at us. So the next time you experience a failure or a mistake in your career, if you're able to pick it up and view it like my toy lorry, rather than be flattened by your experience, you might just be able to learn something really important that can help you to write a better grant and a better paper and become a better researcher. The more fearlessly you interrogate and deal with the challenging experiences and emotions linked to your work, the less afraid you will be to submit your work to the peer review system and stop procrastinating. And the more likely you are to have learned from your previous experiences and therefore to actually get good reviews. As I said at the beginning, over the years, I've uh, asked a lot of my collaborators uh, why they, they really became a researcher. Uh, many of those redirected the question back to me. It's a fair question, uh, fair point. Uh, and at first, I found it quite easy to answer them. Of course, I'm a researcher because I believe my work can, in some small way, help make the world uh, a better place. But over the years, uh, an increasing sense of self-doubt gradually crept over me. Uh, as I began to realise that my desire to make the world a better place was, if I was honest with myself, partly driven by a desire to somehow make up 
for the acts of a person who had made my world as a child really difficult. Uh, the reason it took me so long to recognise this undercurrent in my motivations was that I was afraid that my self-examination would somehow reveal me as a fraud. Uh, at the same time, I was leading a research centre and I was terrified by the idea that I might have built this position and the years of work leading up to it on some kind of misguided delusion of grandeur. Uh, two thoughts in particular troubled me. The first, uh, I wondered if I'd fallen fallen into academia because this is, a, I, I guess, a kind of a paint-by-numbers approach that, uh, that gives you self-esteem, that you learn from school. Work hard, get accepted, um, get good grades, get, get into international journals, get a pat on the back from the world. Uh, and perhaps this explained why I found it so hard when my manuscripts were rejected. If my self-esteem depended on being good enough to get published, then rejections were really personal. Uh, in those days, for me, publishing uh, and funding success didn't just tell me I was good enough as a researcher. If I was honest with myself, it, it told me I was good enough as a person. Uh, it took the concept of public or publish or perish to, to a whole new level. The second thought that, that troubled me was that perhaps my entire career was not actually my own choice, but some psychological reaction. Was I where I was because of what happened to me growing up? And if so, uh, then surely my uh, abuser, not I, was responsible for my success. And if that was the case, then I wasn't sure I wanted to be where I was anymore. The floodgates had opened. On a subconscious level, uh, my colleagues somehow seemed to sense that I didn't believe in myself anymore. And one by one, they started to leave the centre. It was an incredibly challenging time. Eventually, it was just me and my PA doing all the work. <laughs> and then one day I went to my printer and uh, I discovered a job application for a PA position in the local council. And my PA arrived a few moments later to retrieve her printing and stopped short when she saw me holding her application. Rather than apologise, she told me if I was wise, I would do the same thing. It was a really dark time that, that followed this for me. Um, but in the midst of that, I found a new job. Uh, I targeted a job in a mid-ranked university that had a reputation for being friendly. My new boss uh, allowed me to uh, drop down to a four-day-a-week uh, to uh, undertake an intensive recovery programme to really get myself back onto my feet. What I realised during that year changed who I was. So rather than being ashamed of my past, I started to value many of the characteristics that had been born of it. Instead of viewing my success as evidence of dysfunction, I started to view my success as harnessing and transforming the pain that I'd suffered into something good. I was retelling the story of a victim as the story of a survivor, transforming shame into victory. I was learning how to celebrate who I was in a balanced and realistic way, rather than through the temporary ego boosts of publication acceptance and funding success. I'd identified where I was leaking motivation and power, and it was a story. It was a story I had told about myself and was continuing to tell myself. And that story was consistently, on a daily basis, demotivating and disempowering me. Now, however, 
I was constructing a new source of motivation and power that I could tap into every day. I was rerouting my motivational smart grid to bypass my old story that constantly leaked energy. I was retelling my story. I'm going to unpack some of the techniques that, that I use uh, on a daily basis uh, to refresh uh, and, and, and keep alive uh, a story that for me is hugely motivational. Uh, each of us, I think, needs to find our own story. Uh, and I want to make sure that what I tell you over the coming uh, weeks as I dig into this is, is hugely practical. This is my story. Uh, I've uh, linked to some of the research evidence. I'm going to go much deeper into the research evidence. Uh, and I'm going to tell you the stories of other researchers that I've spoken to. Uh, what I've been talking to you uh, about in this main part of the, of the podcast is an excerpt from uh, one of the chapters of my next book. Uh, and in that book, uh, I am sharing with the world the lessons that I have learned from interviewing some of the most productive researchers in the world. Um, uh, working with uh, Elsevier, I've identified uh, the 10 most productive researchers in the world. And these guys make me look just like the most lazy researcher in the world. It is really quite scary. Um, and these incredibly, incredibly productive researchers um, have told me how they become, uh, have become as, as productive and successful uh, as they are. All of them at the very top of their game. Um, and before you start to think, yeah, great for some people, not for me, not in my context. Uh, every single one of these guys has had huge challenges that they have had to work through. And every single one of them uh, explains how they would describe their work-life balance as amazing. Uh, so these are techniques that can make you more productive. They can make you more efficient. These are things that can actually enable you to get work-life balance, not just to produce more and more and more. Fundamentally, though, all of this stuff comes down to your motivations. And I hope that what we've looked at today really helps you to think fresh afresh about what fundamentally motivates and demotivates you. And I hope that uh, you now start to uh, retell your story and, and find new sources of energy. So I like to try and come up with at least one really clear, practical action that you can take in the next week from what we've discussed in the podcast. And what I'd like to do is to revisit uh, this uh, metaphor of the uh, motivational smart grid. Um, and the first of the, the lessons that I took out of that. Uh, and what I'm going to suggest to you today is that you try uh, and uh, whatever it is that you're going on to next, uh, you're finishing this podcast, you're moving on to something, if it is something which is work-related, then uh, try and just grow that mindfulness, that, that emotional awareness of how do you feel in that transition between turning off this podcast and moving on to that work task. Is there a heaviness there? Is there a sense of reluctance? Is there a sense of inspiration? And yes, I really want to do this. I'm really excited about this. Uh, is there some kind of guilt that I'm not doing something else? What is that? Uh, and try and just play with that uh, for a moment in your mind and expand that so you can really look at it and see the shape, the colour, the feel, the smell. Uh, just what is it uh, that, that you feel uh, about that, that transition and what it is that you're, you're moving on to next. 
Uh, and to start to just try and do that each time uh, you have a transition from one task to the next, how do you feel about that? And start to identify what are the things that you're registering as really motivational, that you're really excited about, that you're really inspired by. Uh, and start to, to tag those in your mind and say, right, I've got a list now of two or three things that instantly, yeah, that's inspiring me, that's really motivating me, I love doing that, great. And my suggestion is going to be now that, uh, that you make sure that tomorrow you do something linked to that one or two or three things that you've identified um, that really, really motivate you. It doesn't need to be long, it could just be 10 minutes, it could be half an hour out of your day. Uh, yeah, you've got a whole load of emails you need to get through. Yeah, you've got a whole pile of marking you need to do. Whatever it is that is there, you're making a conscious decision to say, right, when I finish this, it doesn't matter if I don't get it done, I'm gonna make half an hour at the end of this day, or I'm gonna take a break and I'm gonna spend 10 minutes doing this thing that is fundamentally motivational. Uh, and if you start a practice of understanding the things which really motivate you and doing at least one of those things every day, then you will discover that you have a source of power, uh, that you are getting a, a generally higher, more steady, more stable level of motivational power behind your work that keeps you going through the things that are not motivating you uh, and keeps you efficient and focused so that that really annoying task doesn't then just grow arms and legs and span out forever and ever and ever. So try this, see how you get on, and I will be back with you again next week.